Wild Talents by Charles Fort. Narrated by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. Chapter 1. You know, I can only surmise about this, but John Henry Sanders of 75 Colville Street, Derby, England, was the proprietor of a fish store, and I think that it was a small business. His wife helped. When I read of helpful wives, I take it that that means that husbands haven't large businesses. If Mrs. Sanders went about shedding scales in her intercourses, I deduce that theirs wasn't much of a fish business. Upon the evening of March 4, 1905, in the Sanders' home, in the bedroom of their housemaid, there was a fire. Nobody was at home, and the firemen had to break in. There was no fireplace in the bedroom. Not a trace of anything by which to explain was found, and the firemen reported, Origin Unknown. They returned to their station and were immediately called back to this house. There was another fire. It was in another bedroom. Again, origin unknown. The Sanders in their fish store were notified, and they hastened home. Money was missed. Many things were missed. The housemaid, Emma Piggott, was suspected. In her parents' home was found a box, from which the Sanders took and identified as theirs. Five pounds, and a loot of such things as a carving set, sugar tongs, tablecloths, several dozen handkerchiefs, salt spoons, bottles of scent, curtain hooks, a hairbrush, Turkish towels, gloves, a sponge, two watches, and a puff box. The girl was arrested, and in the Derby Borough Police Court, she was charged with arson and larceny. She admitted the thefts, but asserted her innocence on the fires. There was clearly such an appearance of relation between the thefts and the fires, which, if they had burned down the house, would have covered the thefts, that both charges were pressed. It is not only that there had been thefts and then fires. So many things had been stolen that, unless the home of the Sanders was a large household, some of these things would have been missed, unless all had been stolen at once. I have no datum for thinking that the Sanders lived upon such scale as one in which valuables could have been stolen from time to time unknown to them. The indications were of one wide grab, and the girl's attention to set the house afire to cover it. Emma Piggott's lawyer showed that she had been nowhere near the house at the time of the first fire, and that when the second fire broke out, she, in the street, this off evening of hers, returning, had called the attention of neighbors to smoke coming out the window. The case was too complicated for a police court and was put off for the summer seizes. Derby Mercury, July 19th. Trial of the girl resumed. The prosecution maintained that the fires could be explained only as of incendiary origin and that the girl's motive for setting the house afire was plain and that she had plundered so recklessly because she had planned a general destruction by which anything missing would be accounted for. Again, counsel for the defense showed that the girl could not have started the fires. The charge of arson was dropped. Emma Piggott was sentenced to six months' hard labor for the thefts. Upon December 2, 1919, Ambrose Small of Toronto, Canada, disappeared. He was known to have been in his office in the Toronto Grand Opera House, of which he was the owner between 5 and 6 o'clock, the evening of December 2nd. Nobody saw him leave his office. Nobody, at least nobody whose testimony can be accepted, saw him this evening outside the building. There were stories of a woman in the case. But Ambrose Small disappeared and left more than a million dollars behind. Then John Doty, Small's secretary, vanished. Small's safe deposit boxes were opened by Mrs. Small and other trustees of the estate. In the boxes were securities valued at $1,125,000. An inventory was found. According to it, the sum of $105,000 was missing. There was an investigation, and bonds of the value of $105,000 were found, hidden in the home of Doty's sister. All over the world, the disappearance of Ambrose Small was advertised. 
with offers of reward and acres of newspaper space. He was in his office. He vanished. Doty, too, was sought. He had not only vanished, he had done all that he could to be unfindable. But he was traced to a town in Oregon, where he was living under the name of Cooper. He was taken back to Toronto, where he was indicted, charged with having stolen the bonds, and with having abducted Small to cover the thefts. It was the contention of the prosecution that Ambrose Small, wealthy in good health, and with no known troubles of any importance, had no motive to vanish and to leave 1,125,000 behind. But that his secretary, the embezzler, did have a motive for abducting him. The prosecution did not charge that Small had been soundlessly and invisibly picked out of his office, where he was surrounded by assistants. The attempt was to show that he had left his office, and though nobody had seen him go, thinkably, he could have been abducted, unwitnessed in a street. A newsboy testified that he had seen Small in a nearby street between 5 and 6 o'clock, evening of December 2nd, but the boy's father contradicted this story. Another newsboy told that upon this evening after 6 o'clock, Small had bought a newspaper from him. But under examination, this boy admitted he was not sure of the date. It seemed clear that there was a relation between the embezzlement and the disappearance, which, were it not for the inventory, would have covered the thefts. But the accusation of abduction failed. Dowdy was found guilty of embezzlement and was sentenced to six years imprisonment in the Kingston Penitentiary. In the News of the World, London, June 6, 1926, there is an account of strangely intertwined circumstances. In a public place, in the daytime, a man had died. On the footway outside the Gaiety Theatre, London, Henry Arthur Chapel, the manager of the refreshment department of the theatre, had been found dead. There was a post-mortem examination by a well-known pathologist, Professor Piney. The man's skull was fractured. Professor Piney gave his opinion that if, because of a heart failure, Chapel had fallen backward, the fractured skull might be accounted for. But he added that, though he had found indications of a slight affection of the heart, it was not such as would be likely to cause fainting. The indications were that a murder had been committed. The police inquired into the matter and learned that not long before there had been trouble. A girl, Rose Smith employed at one of the refreshment counters, had been discharged by chapel. One night, she had placed on his doorstep a note telling that she intended to kill herself. Several nights later, she was arrested in chapel's back garden. She was dressed in a man's clothes and had a knife. Also, she carried matches and a bottle of paraffin. Presumably, she was bent upon murder and arson. But she was charged with trespassing and was sentenced to two months' hard labor. It was learned that Chapel had died upon the day of this girl's release from prison. Rose Smith was arrested. Chapel had no other known enemy. Upon the day of this girl's release, he had died. But the accusation failed. A police inspector testified that, at the time of Chapel's death, Rose Smith had been in the prisoner's aid home. Chapter 2 I'm a collector of notes upon subjects that have diversity such as deviations from concentricity in the lunar crater Copernicus, and the sudden appearance of purple Englishmen, stationary meteor radiance, and a reported growth of hair on the bald head of a mummy. And did the girl swallow the octopus? But my liveliest interest is not so much in things, as in relations of things. I've spent much time thinking about the alleged pseudo-relations that are called coincidences. What if some of them should not be coincidences? Ambrose Small disappeared, and to only one person could be attributed a motive for his disappearance. Only to one person's motives could the fires in the house in Derby be attributed. Only to one person's motives could be attributed the probable murder of Henry Chapel. But according to the verdicts in all these cases, the meaning of all this is nothing but coincidence between motives and events. 
Before I looked into the case of Ambrose Small, I was attracted to it by another seeming coincidence. That there could be any meaning in it seemed so preposterous that, as influenced by much experience, I gave it serious thought. About six years before the disappearance of Ambrose Small, Ambrose Bierce had disappeared. Newspapers all over the world had made much of the mystery of Ambrose Bierce. But what could the disappearance of one Ambrose in Texas have to do with the disappearance of another Ambrose in Canada? Was somebody collecting Ambroses? There was in these questions an appearance of childishness that attracted my respectful attention. Lloyd's Sunday News, London, June 20th, 1920. That near the town of Stretton, Leicester, had been found the body of a cyclist, Annie Bella Wright. She had been killed by a wound in her head. The correspondent who wrote the story was an illogical fellow who loaded his story with an unrelated circumstance or with a dim suspicion of an unexplained relationship. He noted that, in a field not far from where the body of the girl lay, was found the body of a crow. In the explanation of coincidence, there is much of laziness and helplessness and response to an instinctive fear that a scientific dogma will be endangered. It is a tag or a label, but of course every tag or label fits well enough at times. A while ago, I noted a case of detectives who were searching for a glass-eyed man named Jackson. A Jackson with a glass eye was arrested in Boston. But he was not the Jackson they wanted, and pretty soon they got their glass-eyed Jackson in Philadelphia. I never developed anything out of this item, such as that, if there's a Murphy with a hair lip in Chicago, there must be another hair-lipped Murphy somewhere else. It would be a comforting idea to optimists who think that ours is a balanced existence. All that I report is that I haven't confirmed it. But the body of a girl and the body of a crow, and going over files of newspapers, I came upon this. The body of a woman found in the River Dee, near the town of Eccleston, London Daily Express, June 12, 1911. And nearby was found the body of another woman. One of these women was a resident of Eccleston. The other was a visitor from the Isle of Man. They had been unknown to each other. About 10 o'clock, morning of June 10th, they had gone out from houses in opposite parts of the town. New York American, October 20th, 1929. Two bodies found in Desert Mystery. In the Coachella Desert, near Indio, California, had been found two dead men, about two yards apart. One had been a resident of Coachella, but the other was not identified. Authorities believed there was no connection between the two deaths. In the New York Herald, November 26, 1911, there is an account of the hanging of three men for the murder of Sir Edmund Barry Godfrey on Greenberry Hill, London. The names of the three murderers were Green, Barry, and Hill. It does seem that this was only a matter of chance. Still, it may have been no coincidence, but a savage pun mixed with murder. New York Sun, October 7, 1930. Arm of William Lumsden, of Rosalind, Washington, crushed under a tractor. He was the third person in three generations in his family to lose a left arm. This was coincidence, or I shall have to come out accepting that there may be curses on families. But near the beginning of a book, I don't like to come out so definitely, and we're getting away from our subject, which is bodies. Unexplained drownings in Douglas Harbor, Isle of Man. In the London Daily News, August 19, 1910, it was said that the bodies of a young man and of a girl had been found in the harbor. They were known as a young couple, and their drowning would be understandable in terms of a common emotion were it not that also there was a body of a middle-aged man, not known in any way connected with them. London Daily Chronicle, September 10, 1924. Near Saldine, Sussex, Mr. F. Pender, with two passengers in his sidecar, collided with a post, and all were seriously injured. In a field, by the side of the road, was found the body of a Rodwell shepherd named Funnel, who had no known relation with the accident. 
An occurrence on the 14th of June, 1931, is told of in the Home News, Bronx of the 15th, when Policeman Talbot of the East 126th Street Station went into Mount Morris Park at 10 a.m. yesterday to awaken a man apparently asleep on a bench near the 124th Street gate, he found the man dead. Dr. Patterson at Harlem Hospital said that the death had probably been caused by heart failure. New York Sun, June 15th, that soon after the finding of this body on the bench, another dead man was found on a bench nearby. I have two stories which resemble the foregoing stories, but I should like to have them considered together. In November 1888, St. Louis Globe Democrat, December 20th, 1888, two residents of Birmingham, Alabama, were murdered and their bodies were found in the woods. Then there was such a new mystery that these murder mysteries were being overlooked. In the woods near Birmingham was found a third body, but this was the body of a stranger. The body lies unidentified at the undertaker's rooms. No one who had seen it can remember having seen the man in life, and identification seems impossible. The dead man was evidently in good circumstances, if not wealthy, and what he could have been doing at the spot where his body was found is a mystery. Several persons who have seen the body are of the opinion that the man was a foreigner. Anyway, he was an entire stranger in this vicinity, and his coming must have been as mysterious as his death. I noted these circumstances simply as a mystery, but when a situation repeats, I notice with my livelier interest. The situation is of local murders and the appearance of a corpse of a stranger who had not been a tramp. Philadelphia Public Ledger, February 4th, 1892. Murder near Johnstown, Pennsylvania. A man and his wife, named Kring, had been butchered, and their bodies had been burned. Then, in the woods near Johnston, the corpse of a stranger was found. The body was well-dressed, but could not be identified. Another body was found, well-dressed man who bore no means of identification. There is a view by which it can be shown, or more or less demonstrated, that there never has been a coincidence. That is, in anything like a final sense. By a coincidence is meant a false appearance or suggestion of relations among circumstances. But anybody who accepts that there is an underlying oneness of all things accepts that there are no utter absences of relations among circumstances or that there are no coincidences, in the case that there are no real discords in either colors or musical notes. That any two colors or sounds can be harmonized by intermediately relating them to other colors or sounds. And I'd not say that my question as to what the disappearance of one Ambrose could have to do with the disappearance of another Ambrose is so senseless. The idea of causing Ambrose Small to disappear may have had origin in somebody's mind, by suggestion from the disappearance of Ambrose Bierce. If in no terms of physical abduction can the disappearance of Ambrose Small be explained, I'll not say that that has any meaning, until the physicists intelligibly define what they mean by physical terms. Chapter 3 in days of yore, when I was an especially bad young one, my punishment was having to go to the store, Saturdays, and work. I had to scrape off labels of other dealers' canned goods and paste on my parents' label. Theoretically, I was so forced to labor to teach me the errors of deceitful ways. A good many brats are brought up in the straight and narrow, somewhat deviously. One time I had pyramids of canned goods containing a variety of fruits and vegetables, but I had used all except peach labels. I pasted the peach labels on peach cans and then came to apricots. Well, aren't apricots peaches? And there are plums that are virtually apricots. I went on, either mischievously or scientifically, pasting the peach labels on cans of plums, cherries, string beans, and succotash. I can't quite define my motive, because to this day, it has not been decided whether I am a humorist or a scientist. I think that it was mischief, but as we go along, there will come a more respectful recognition that also it was scientific procedure. In the town of Derby, England, 
see the Derby Mercury, May 15th, and following issues, 1905, there were occurrences that, to the undiscerning, will seem to have nothing to do with either peaches or succotash. In a girls' school, girls screamed and dropped to the floor, unconscious. There are readers who will think over well-known ways of peaches and succotash, and won't know what I am writing about. There are others who will see symbolism in it, and will send me appreciations, and I won't know what they are writing about. In five days, there were 45 instances of girls who screamed and dropped unconscious. The girls were exceedingly weak, and had to be carried home. One child had lost strength so that she could not even sit up. It was thought that some unknown, noxious gas or vapor was present. But mice were placed in the classrooms, and they were unaffected. Then the scientific explanation was mass psychology. Having no more data to work on, it seems to me that this explanation is a fitting description. If a girl fainted, and if, sympathetically, another girl fainted, it is well in accord with our impressions of human nature which sees, eats, smells, thinks, loves, hates, talks, dresses, reads, and undergoes surgical operations, contagiously, to think of 43 other girls losing consciousness in involuntary imitativeness. There are mature persons who may feel superior to such hysteria, but so many of them haven't much consciousness. In the Brooklyn Eagle, August 1st, 1894, there is a story of mass psychology. In this case, too, it seems to me that the description fits, maybe. Considering the way people live, it is natural to them to die imitatively. There was, in July in 1894, a panic in a large vineyard at Collis, near Fresno, California. Somebody in this vineyard had dropped dead of heart failure. Somebody else dropped dead. A third victim had dropped and was dying there wasn't a scientist with a good and sticky explanation on the place. It will be thought amusing, but the people in the vineyard believed that something uncanny was occurring, and they fled. Everybody has left the place, and the authorities are preparing to begin a searching investigation. Anything more upon this subject is not findable. That is the usual experience after announcement of searching investigation. If something can't be described any other way, it's mass psychology. In the town of Bradford, England, in a house in Columbia Street, 1st of March, 1923, there was one of those occasions of the congratulations, hates, malices, and gaieties, and more or less venomous jealousies that combine in the state that is said to be merry of a wedding party. The babble of this wedding party suddenly turned to delirium. There were screams, and guests dropped to the floor, unconscious. Wedding bells, the gongs of ambulances, four persons were taken to hospitals. This occurrence was told of in the London newspapers, and though strange, it seemed that the conventional explanation fitted it. Yorkshire Evening Argus, published in Bradford, March 3, 1923. Particulars that make for restiveness against any conventional explanation. People in adjoining houses had been affected by this mysterious malady. Several names of families, members of which had been overcome unaccountably, were published. Downing, Blakely, Ingram. If people in different houses and out of contact with one another, or not so circumstance as to mass their psychologies, and all narrowly localized in one small neighborhood, were similarly affected, it seemed clear that there was a case of common exposure to something that was poisonous, or otherwise injurious. Of course, an escape of gas was thought of, but there was no odor of gas, no leakage of gas was found, there was the unusual searching investigation that precedes forgetfulness, there was somebody's suggestion that the mysterious malady had been caused by fumes from a nearby factory chimney. I think that the wedding party was the central circumstance, but I don't think of a factory chimney, which has never been so expressed itself before, suddenly fuming at a wedding party. An Argus reporter wrote that the health officers had rejected this suggestion and that he had investigated and had detected no unusual odor in the neighborhood. In this occurrence at Bradford, there was no odor of gas. I have noted a case in London in which there was an odor of gas. 
Nevertheless, this case is no less mysterious. In the Weekly Dispatch, London, June 12, 1910, it is called one of the most remarkable and mysterious cases of gas poisoning that have occurred in London in recent years. Early in the morning of June 10th, a woman telephoned to a police station, telling of what she thought was an escape of gas. A policeman went to the house, which was in Neal Street, Holborn. He considered the supposed leakage alarming and rapped on doors of another floor in the house. There was no response, and he broke down a door, finding the occupants unconscious. In two neighboring houses, four unconscious persons were found. A circumstance that was considered extraordinary was that between these two houses was one in which nobody was affected, and in which there was no odor of gas. The gas company sent men who searched for a leak, but in vain. Fumes, as if from an uncommon and easily discoverable escape of gas, had overcome occupants of three houses, but according to the local newspaper, the Holborn Guardian, the gas company, a week later, had been unable to discover its origin. In December 1921, there was an occurrence in the village of Zittel, Germany. London Daily News, January 2nd, 1922. This was in the streets of a town. Somebody dropped unconscious, and whether in an epidemic of fright, accounted for in terms of mass psychology or not, other persons dropped unconscious. So far, no light has been thrown on the mystery. It was thought that a current of some kind had passed over the village. This resembles the occurrence at El Paso, Texas, June 19, 1929. New York Sun, December 6, 1930. Scores of persons in the streets dropped unconscious, and several of them died. Whatever appeared here was called a deadly miasma. And the linkage goes on to the scores of deaths in a fog. In the Moose Valley, Belgium, December 5, 1930 so that one could smoothly and logically start with affairs in a girls' school and end up with a meteorological discussion. Lloyd's Weekly News, London, January 17, 1909. Story from the Caucasian city of Baku. M. Kraslokrov and two companions had gone upon a hunting trip to Sand Island in the Caspian Sea. Nothing had been heard from them, and there was an investigation. The searchers came upon the bodies of the three men lying in positions that indicated they had died without a struggle. No marks of injuries, no disarrangement of clothes. At the autopsy, no trace of poison was found. The doctors, though they would not commit themselves to an explanation, thought the men had been stifled. The Observer, London, August 23, 1925. A mysterious tragedy is reported from the Polish Tatra Mountains, near the health resort of Zakopan. A party composed of Mr. Kaznika, the judge of the Supreme Court, his wife, a 12-year-old son, and a student of Krakow University, started in fine weather for a short excursion in the neighboring mountains. Two days later, three of them were found dead. Mrs. Kaznika was alive. She told that all were climbing and were in good condition when suffocation came upon them. A stifling wind, she thought. One after another, they dropped unconscious. The post-mortem examinations revealed nothing that indicated deaths by suffocation, nor anything else that could be definitely settled upon. Some newspapers suggested a crime, but so far the case remains a mystery. There have been cases that have been called mysterious, though they seem explicable enough in known circumstances of human affairs. See a story in the New York World Telegram, March 9, 1931, about 30 men and women at work in the Howard Close Company factory, Nassau Street, Brooklyn. Sudden terror and panic of these people to get to the street. The place was filled with a pungent, sickening odor. In the street, men and women collapsed or reeled or wandering away in a semi-conscious condition. Several dozen of them were carried into stores where they were given first aid treatment until ambulances arrived. The phenomena occurred in the second floor of the Carey building, occupied by the clothing company. Nobody in any other part of the building was affected. All gas fixtures in the factory were intact. No gas bomb was found. Nothing was found out. But considering many crimes of this period, the suspicion is strong that in some way, as an expression of human hatred, 
of origin in industrial troubles, a volume of poisonous gas has been discharged into this factory. And it may be that, in terms of revenges, we are on the track of a general expression. Even if we think of a hate that could pursue people far up on a mountainside, in hosts of minds today are impressions that the word eerie means nothing except convenience to makers of crossword puzzles. There are gulfs of the unaccountable, but they are bridged by terminology. Four persons were taken from a wedding party to hospitals. Well, if not another case of such jocularity as mixing brick with confetti, it was ice cream again and pomaine poisoning. There is such a satisfaction in so explaining and showing that one knows better than to sound the P in tomaine that probably vast holes of ignorance always will be bridged by very slender pedantries. Asphyxiation has seduced hosts of suspicions that would be resolute against such a common explanation as gas poisoning. New York Sun, May 22, 1928. Story from the town of Newton, Mass. In this town, a physician was, by telephone, called to the home of William M. Duncan. There was nobody to meet him at the door, but he got into the house. He called, but nobody answered. There seemed to be nobody at home, but he went through the house. He came to a room, upon the floor of which were lying four bodies. There was no odor of gas, but the doctor worked over the four, as if upon cases of asphyxiation. And they revived and tried to explain. Duncan had gone to this room, and upon entering it had dropped unconscious. Wondering at what was delaying him, his wife had followed, and down she had fallen. One of his sons came next, and upon entering this room, had fallen to the floor. The other son, by chance, went to this room and felt something overcoming him. Before losing consciousness, he staggered to the telephone. The doctor's explanation was mass psychology. It is likely that readers of The Sun were puzzled until they came to this explanation, and then, oh, of course, mass psychology. There is a continuity of all things that makes classifications fictions, but all human knowledge depends upon arrangements. Then all books, scientific, theological, philosophical, are only literary. In Scotland, in the month of September 1903, there was an occurrence that can as reasonably be considered a case of mass psychology, as can be some of the foregoing instances. But now we are emerging into data that seem to be of physical attacks. There will be more emerging. One can't, unless one be hopelessly, if not brutally, a scientist or a logician, tied to any classification. The story is told in the Daily Messenger, Paris, September 13, 1903. In a coal mine near Coalbridge, Scotland, miners came upon the bodies of three men. There was no coal gas. There was no sign of violence of any kind. Two of these men were dead, but one of them revived. He could tell, enlighteningly, no more than could any other survivor in the stories of this group. He told that his name was Robert Bell, and that, with his two cousins, he had been walking in the mine, when he felt what he described as a shock. No disturbance had been felt by anyone else in the mine, though other parts of this mine were lighted by electricity. There was not a wire in this part. There was, at this point, a deadly discharge of an unknown force. Just when, by coincidence, three men happened to be passing, or something more purposeful is suggested. Down in the dark of a coal mine, and there is a seeming of the congruous between mysterious attacks and surroundings. Now I have a story of a similar occurrence at a point that was one of the Earth's most crowded thoroughfares. See the New York Herald, January 23, 1909. John Harding, who was the head of a department in John Wanamaker's store, was crossing Fifth Avenue at 33rd Street when he felt a stinging sensation upon his chest. There was no sign of a missile of any kind. Then he saw, nearby, a man who was rubbing his arm, looking around angrily. The other man told Harding that something unseen had struck him. If this occurrence had been late at night, and if only two persons were crossing Fifth Avenue at 33rd Street, and if a force of intensity enough to kill had struck them, the explanation upon the finding of the bodies would probably be that the two men, by coincidence, died in one place of a heart failure. At any rate, 
see back to the case of the bodies on benches of a Harlem park. No reporter of the finding of these bodies questioned the explanation that two men sitting near each other had died virtually simultaneously of heart failure by coincidence. Chapter 4 Not a bottle of ketchup can fall from a tenement house fire escape in Harlem without being noted, not only by the indignant people downstairs, but even though infinitesimally, universally, maybe, affecting the price of pajamas in New Jersey City. The temper of somebody's mother-in-law in Greenland. The demand in China for rhinoceros horns for the cure of rheumatism. Maybe. Because all these things are interrelated, continuous, of an underlying oneness. So then the underlying logic of the boy who was guilty of much, but was at least innocent of ever having heard of a syllogism, who pasted a peach label on a can of string beans. All these are so interrelated that, though the difference between a fruit and what is commonly called the vegetable seems obvious, there is no defining either. A tomato, for instance, represents the merging point. Which is it, fruit or vegetable? So then the underlying logic of the scientist, who is guilty of much, but also is very innocent, who, having started somewhere with his explanation of mass psychology, keeps right on sticking on that explanation. Inasmuch as there is always a view somewhere in defense of anything conceivable, he must be at least minutely reasonable. If mass psychology applies definitely to one occurrence, it must, even though almost imperceptibly, apply to all occurrences. Phenomena of a man alone on a desert island can be explained in terms of mass psychology, inasmuch as the mind of no man is a unit, but is a community of mental states that influence one another. Interrelations of all things, and I can feel something like the hand of Emma Piggott reaching out to the hand, as it were, of the asphyxiated woman on the mountainside. John Doty and bodies on benches in a Harlem park as oxygen has affinity for hydrogen. Rose Smith, Ambrose Small, the body of a shepherd named Funnel. Upon the morning of April 10, 1893, after several men had been taken to a Brooklyn hospital, somebody's attention was attracted to something queer. Several accidents in quick succession in different parts of the city would not be considered strange, but a similarity was noted. See the Brooklyn Eagle, April 10, 1893. Then there was a hustle of ambulances and much ringing of gongs. Alex, Bergman, Geo, Sitchers, Lawrence Beck, George Barton, Patrick Gibbons, James Meehan, George Bedell, Michael Brown, John Trowbridge, Timothy Hennessy, Philip Oldwell, and an unknown man. In the course of a few hours, these men were injured in the streets of Brooklyn almost all of them by falling from high places, or by being struck by objects that fell from high places. Again, it is one of my questions that are so foolish, and that may not be so senseless. What could the fall of a man from a roof in one part of Brooklyn have to do with a rap on the sconce by a flower pot of another man in another part of Brooklyn? In the town of Colchester, England, as told in Lloyd's Daily News, London, April 30th, 1911, a soldier garrisoned at Colchester was, upon the evening of April 24th, struck senseless. He was so seriously injured that he was taken to the garrison hospital. Here he could give no account of what had befallen him. The next night, to this hospital, was taken another seriously injured soldier, who had been struck senseless by an unseen assailant. Four nights later, a third soldier was taken to this hospital, suffering from the effects of a blow, about which he could tell nothing. I have come upon a case of the mass psychology of lace curtains, about the last of March, 1892. See the Brooklyn Eagle, April 19th, 1892. People who had been away from home in Chicago returned to find that during their absence there had been an orgy of curtains. Lace curtains were lying about in lumps and distortions. It was a melancholy prostration of virtues, things so flimsy and frail, yet so upright, so long as they are supported. Bureau drawers had been ransacked for jewelry, and jewelry had been found, but nothing had been stolen, 
strewn about were fragments of rings and watches that had been savagely smashed. There are, in this account, several touches of the ghost story. There are many records of similar wanton or furious destructions in houses where poltergeist disturbances were occurring. Also, there was mystery because the police could not find out how this house had been entered. Then came news of another house, which, while the dwellers were away, had been mysteriously entered. Lace curtains and rags were lying about, and so were remains of dresses that had been slashed. Jewelry and other ornaments had been smashed. Nothing had been stolen. So far as the police could learn, the occupants of these houses had no common enemy. The rage against lace curtains is hard to explain, but the hatred of somebody whose windows were bare against all finery and ornaments is easily understandable. Soon after rages had swept through these two houses, other houses were entered, with no signs of how the vandal got in, and lace curtains were pulled down, and there was much destruction of finery and ornaments, and nothing was stolen. New York Times, January 26, 1873 that in England, during the Pitchley Hunt, General Mayow fell dead from his saddle, and that about the same time in Gloucester, the daughter of the Bishop of Gloucester, while hunting, was seriously injured, and that upon the same day in north of England, a Miss Cavendish, while hunting, was killed. Not long afterward, a clergyman was killed while hunting in Lincolnshire. About the same time, two hunters near Sanders Gorse were thrown and were seriously injured. In one of my incurable scientific moments, I suggest that when diverse units of however one character in common are similarly affected, the incident force is related to the common character. But there is no suggestion that any visible hater of fox hunters was traveling in England, pulling people from saddles and tripping horses. But that there always has been intense feeling in England against fox hunters is apparent to anyone who conceives of himself as a farmer. And his fences broken, and his crops trampled by an invasion of redcoats, and a wild desire to make a bunker hill of it. In the New York Evening World, December 26, 1930, it was said that Warden Lewis E. Laws of Sing Sing Prison had been ill. The warden recovered, and upon Christmas morning left his room. He was told that a friend of his, Maurice Conway, who had come to visit him, had been found dead in bed. Upon Christmas Eve, Keeper John Highland had been operated upon for appendicitis and was in serious condition in Olsingning Hospital. In the same hospital was Keeper John Westcott, who also had been stricken with appendicitis. Keeper Henry Barrett was in this hospital, waiting to be operated upon for hernia. Probably the most hated man in New York State Prison Service was Asael J. Granger, head keeper of Clinton Prison at Danamora. He had effectively quelled the prison riot of July 22, 1929. Upon this Christmas day of 1930, in the Champlain Valley Hospital, Plattsburgh, New York, Granger was operated upon for appendicitis. Two days later, he died. About this time, Harry M. Kaiser, the warden of Clinton Prison, was suffering from what was said to be high blood pressure. He died three months later. New York Herald Tribune, March 24, 1931. The London newspapers of March 1926 told of fires that had simultaneously broken out in several parts of Close's Hall, the residence of Captain B. Heaton, near Clitheroe, Lancashire. The fires were in the woodwork under the roof and were believed to have been caused by sparks from the kitchen stove. These fires were in places that were inaccessible to ordinary incendiary. To get them, the firemen had to chop holes in the roof. Nothing was said of previous fires here. Maybe it is strange that sparks from a kitchen stove should simultaneously ignite remote parts of a house, distances apart. A fire in somebody's house did not much interest me. But then I read of a succession of similars. In three months, there had been ten other mansion fires. Scotland Yard recently made arrangements for all details of mansion fires to be sent to them, in order that the circumstances might be collated and the probable cause of the outbreaks discovered. April 2, 1926, Ashley Moore, a mansion near Leominster, destroyed by fire. Somebody or something was burning mansions. 
How it was done was the mystery. There was a scare, and probably these houses were more than ordinarily guarded. But so well protected are they, ordinarily, that some extraordinary means of entrance is suggested. In no report was it said that there was any evidence of how an incendiary got into a house. No theft was reported. For months, every now and then, there was a mansion fire. Presumably, the detectives of Scotland Yard were busily collating. The London newspapers of November 6th told of the 30th mansion fire in about 10 months. There were flaming mansions, and there were flaming utterances in England. Sometimes I am a collector of data, and only a collector, and am likely to be gross and miserly, piling up notes, pleased with merely numerically adding to my stores. Other times I have joys when unexpectedly coming upon an outrageous story that may not be altogether a lie, or upon a macabre little thing that may make some reviewer of my more or less good works mad. But always there is present a feeling of unexplained relations of events that I note. And it is this far away, haunting or often taunting, awareness or suspicion that keeps me piling on or in a feeling of relatability of seemingly most incongruous occurrences that nevertheless may be correlated into the service of one general theme, I'm like a primitive farmer who conceives that a zebra and a cow may be hitched together to draw his plow. But isn't there something common about zebras and cows, an ostrich and a hyena? Then the concept of pageantry, the ransack of the jungles for creatures of the widest unlikeness to draw his plow. And former wild clatters of hooves and patters of paws are the tramp of a song. Here come the animals two by two, or John Doty, three abreast with the dead men of Harlem Park, pulling on my theme. Followed by the 45 schoolgirls of Derby, and the fish dealer's housemaid, with her arms full of sponges and Turkish towels followed by burning beds most suggestively associated with her, but in no way that any conventional thinker can explain. Or the mansion fires in England in the year 1926. And in a minor hitch-up, I feel the relatability of the two scenes. In Hyde Park, London, an orator shouts, What we want is no king and no law. How we'll get it will be, not with ballots, but with bullets. Far away in Gloucester, a house that dates back to Elizabethan times unaccountably bursts into flames. Chapter 5 Good morning, said the dog. He disappeared in a thin greenish vapor. I have this record upon newspaper authority. It can't be said, and therefore will be said, that I have a marvelous credulity for newspaper yarns but I am so obviously offering everything in this book as fiction. That is, if there is fiction. But this book is fiction in the sense that Pickwick's papers and the adventures of Sherlock Holmes and Uncle Tom's Cabin, Newton's Principia, Darwin's Origin of Species, Genesis, Gulliver's Travels, and Mathematical Theorems, and every history of the United States and all other histories are fictions. A library myth that irritates me the most is the classification of books under fiction and non-fiction. And yet, there is something about the yarns that were told by Dickens that sets them apart, as it were, from the yarns that were told by Euclid. There is much in Dickens' grotesqueries that the correspondence with experience that is called truth, whereas such Euclidean characters as mathematical points are the vacancies that might be expected from a mind that has had scarcely any experience. The dog story is axiomatic. It must be taken on faith. And even though with effects that sometimes are not much admired, I ask questions. It was told in the New York World, July 29, 1908, many petty robberies in the neighborhood of Lincoln Avenue, Pittsburgh. Detectives detailed to catch the thief. Early in the morning of July 26th, a big black dog sauntered past them. Good morning, said the dog. He disappeared in a thin greenish vapor. There will be readers who will want to know what I mean by turning down this story while accepting so many others in this book. It is because I never write about marvels, 
the wonderful or the never-before-heard-of, I leave to whimsical or radical fellows. All books written by me are of quite ordinary occurrences. If, say, sometime in the year 1847, a New Orleans newspaper told of a cat who said, Well, is it warm enough for you? And instantly disappeared sulfuriously, as should everybody who says that. And if I had a clipping, dated sometime in the year 1930, telling of a mouse who squeaked, I was along this way and thought I'd drop in, and vanished along a trail of purple sparklets, and something similar from the St. Helena Guardian, August 17, 1905, and something like that from the Madras Mail, year 1879, I'd consider the story of the polite dog no marvel, and I'd admit him to our fold. But it is not that I take numerous repetitions as a standard for admission. The fellow who found the pearl in the oyster stew, the old fiddle that turned out to be a Stradivarius, the ring that was lost in a lake, and then what was found when a fish was caught. But these often repeated yarns are conventional yarns, and almost all liars are conventionalists. The one quality that the lower animal have not in common with human beings is creative imagination. Neither a man, nor a dog, nor an oyster ever has had any. Of course, there is another view by which is seen that there is in everything a touch of creativeness. I cannot say that truth is stranger than fiction, because I have never had acquaintance with either. Though I have classed myself with some noted fictionists, I have to accept that the absolute fictionist never has existed. There is a fictional coloration to everybody's account of an actual occurrence, and there is at least the lurk somewhere of what is called the actual in everybody's yarn. There is the hyphenated state of truth fiction. Out of dozens of reported pearls in stews, most likely there have been instances, most likely once upon a time, of an old fiddle did turn out to be a Stradivarius. And it could be that once upon a time a somebody did get a ring back fishwise. But when I come upon the unconventional repeating in times and places far apart, I feel, even though I have no absolute standards to judge by, that I am outside the field of ordinary liars. Even in the matter of the talking dog, I think that the writer probably had something to base upon. Perhaps he heard of talking dogs. It is not that I think it impossible that detectives could meet a dog who would say, Good morning. That's no marvel. It is good morning, and disappearing in the thin greenish vapor that I am making such a time about. In the New York Herald Tribune, February 21st, 1928, there was an account of a French bulldog owned by Mrs. Mabel Robinson of Bangor, Maine. He could distinctively say, Hello, Mrs. J. Stuart Tompkins, taught West 85th Street, New York, read of this animal and called up the Herald Tribune, telling of her dog, a great Dane, who was at least equally accomplished. A reporter went to interview the dog and handed him a piece of candy. Thank you, said the dog. In the city of Northampton, England, see Lloyd's Weekly News, London, March 2, 1912. A detective chased a burglar, who had entered a hardware shop. The burglar got away. The detective went back and got into the store. There were objects hanging on hooks overhead. By coincidence, just as the detective passed under one of them, it fell. It was a scythe blade. It cut off his ear. Now I am upon familiar ground. There are suggestions in this story that correlate with suggestions in other stories. A bank in Blackpool was robbed in broad daylight on Saturday in mysterious circumstances. So says the London Daily Telegraph, August 7, 1926. It was one of the largest establishments in town, the Blackpool branch of the Midland Bank. At noon, Saturday, while the doors were closing, an official of the Corporation Tramways Department went into the building with a bag which contained... 800 pounds, in treasury notes. In the presence of about 25 customers, he placed the bag upon a counter. Then the doorman unlocked the front door for him to go out, and then returned with another amount of money, in silver, from a motor van. The bag had vanished from the counter. It was a large leather bag. Nobody could, without making himself conspicuous, try to conceal it. Nobody wearing a maternity cloak was reported. In the afternoon, in a side street near the bank, the bag was found. 
and was taken to a police station. But the lock on it was peculiar and complicated, and the police could not open it. An official of the tramways department was sent for. When the tramways man arrived with the key, no money was found in the bank. If a bag can vanish from a bank without passing the doorman, I record no marvel in telling of money that vanished from a bag, though maybe the bag had not been opened. Well, then there's nothing marvelous about it. If from a locked drawer of Mrs. Bradley's bureau, money disappeared. New York Times, February 28, 1874. Miss Lydia Bradley of Peoria, Illinois. Mysteriously robbed. There were other occurrences, and they too were anything but marvelous. Pictures came down from the walls and furniture sauntered about the place. Stoves slung their lids at people. Such doings have often been reported from houses in the throes of poltergeist disturbances. There are many records of pictures that couldn't be kept hanging on walls. Chairs and tables have been known to form in orderly fashion, three or four abreast, and parade. In Mrs. Bradley's home, the doings were in the presence of the housemaid, Margaret Corville. So the girl was suspected, and one time, in the midst of pranks by things that are ordinary, so stayed and settled, somebody held her hands. While her hands were held, a loud crash was heard. A piano, which up to that moment had been behaving itself properly, joined in. But the girl was accused. She confessed to everything, including the stealing of the money, except whatever had occurred when her hands were held. There are dozens of poltergeist cases in which the girl, oftenest a young housemaid, has confessed to all particulars, except things that occurred while she was held, tied, or being knocked about. Ignoring these omissions, accounts by investigators end with a satisfactory explanation that the girl had confessed. In the Home News, Bronx, New York, September 25, 1927, is a story of ghost-like depredations. In the town of Barberton, Ohio, lived an uncatchable thief. I call attention to an element often of openness, often of defiance, that will appear in many of our stories. It's as if there are criminals, and sometimes mischievous fellows, who can do unaccountable things and delight in mystifying their victims confident that they cannot be caught. For ten years, the uncatchable thief of Barberton had been operating, periodically. In some periods, as if to show off his talents, he returned to the same house half a dozen times. In January 1925, the police of London were in the state of mind of the rest of us, when we try to solve crossword puzzles that have been filled in with alleged Scotch dialect, or obsolete terms and names of improbable South American rodents. Somebody was playing a game, unfairly making it difficult. The things that he did were what a crossword author would call vars. He was called the cat burglar. Since his time, many minor fellows have been so named. The newspapers stressed what they called the criminal's uncanny ability to enter houses. But I think that the stress should have been upon his knowledge of just where to go after entering houses. Whether he had the property of invisibility or not, residents of Mayfair reported losses of money and jewelry that could not be more mystifying if an invisible being had come through the doors and windows without having to open them, and had strolled through the rooms, sizing up the lay of things. He was called the cat burglar because there was no conventional way of accounting for his entrances, except by thinking that he had climbed up the sides of houses, always knowing just what room to climb to climbing with a skill that no cat has ever had. Sometimes it was said that marks were seen on drain pipes and on window sills. Just so long as the police can say something that is accepted as next best to doing something. Of course, in this respect, I'd not pick out any one profession. The cat burglar piled up jewelry that would satisfy anybody's dream of expensive junk, and then he vanished, maybe not in a thin greenish vapor, but anyway, in an atmosphere of the unfair mystification of crosswords that have been made difficult with vars and obs, perhaps marks were found on drain pipes and on windowsills. But only logicians think that anything has any exclusive meaning. If I had the power of invisibly entering houses but preferred to turn off suspicions, I'd make marks on drain pipes and windowsills. 
Everything that has ever meant anything has just as truly meant something else. Otherwise, experts called to testify at trials would not be the fantastic exhibits that they so often are. New York Evening Post, March 14, 1928. People in a block of houses in the 3rd District of Vienna, terrorized. They were haunted by a mysterious person who entered houses and stole small objects, never taking money, doing these things just to show what he could do. Then from dusk to dawn, the police formed in a cordon around this block and at approaches to it stationed police dogs. The disappearances of small objects of little value continued. There were stories of this uncanny burglar or maniac having been seen running lizard-wise along moonlit roofs. My own notion is that nothing was seen running along roofs. There was such excitement that the highest authorities of Vienna University offered their mentalities for the help of the baffled policemen and their dogs. I wish I could record an intellectual contest between college professors and dogs. There might be some glee for my malices. There are probably many college professors who at times read of strange crimes and sympathize with civilization because they had not taken to detective work. However, nothing more was said of the professors who offered to help the cops and the dogs. But there was a challenge here, and I'm sorry to note that it was not accepted. It would have been a crowning show-off if perhaps occult sportsmen had entered the homes of some of these highest authorities, and had stolen from them whatever it is by which highest authorities maintain their authority, or had robbed them of their pants. But he did not rise to this opportunity. After we have more data, it will be my expression that probably he could not practice outside this one block of houses. However, he got into a house in which lived a policeman, and he went to the policeman's bedroom. He touched nothing else, but stole the policeman's revolver. Upon the afternoon of June 18, 1907, occurred one of the most sensational, insolent, contemptible, or magnificent thefts in the annals of crime, as viewed by most Englishmen or a crime not without a little interest to Americans. On a table, on the lawn back of the grandstand, at Ascot, the Ascot Cup was upon exhibition, 13 inches high and 6 inches in diameter, 20 karat gold, weighed 68 ounces. The cup was guarded by a policeman and by a representative of the makers. The story is told in the London Times, June 19th. Presumably all around was a crowd kept at a distance by the policeman, though according to the standards of the Times in the year 1907, it was not dignified to go into details much. From what I know of the religion of the turf in England, I assume that there was a crowd of devotees looking worshipfully at this icon. It wasn't there. About this time there was a place and a time and a treasure that were worthy the attention of, or that were a challenge to any magician. The place was Dublin Castle. Outside, day and night, a policeman and a soldier were on duty. Within distance of 50 yards were the headquarters of the Dublin Metropolitan Police, of the Royal Irish Constabulary, the Dublin Detective Force, the military garrison. It was at the time of the Irish International Exhibition at Dublin. Upon the 10th of July, King Edward and Queen Alexandra were there to arrive to visit the exhibition. In a safe in the strong room of the castle had been kept the jewels that were worn by the Lord Lieutenant upon state occasions. They were a barbaric pile of bracelets, rings, and other insignia of a value of $250,000. And, of course, they had disappeared about the time of the disappearance of the Ascot Cup, sometime between June 5th and July 6th. All investigations came to nothing. For about 24 years, nothing new came out. Then, according to a dispatch from London to the New York Times, September 6, 1931, there was a report of attempted negotiations with the Dublin authorities, or an offer by which, under certain conditions, the jewels would be returned. If this rumor were authentic, the remarkable part is that the varied jeweled objects had not been broken up, but for 24 years had been kept intact. This is the look of the stunt. But what I am worrying about is the big dog who said good morning 
and disappeared in a thin greenish vapor. I am not satisfied with my explanation of why I rejected him. Considering some of my acceptances, it seems so illogical to turn down the dog who said good morning. Accepted only to the purist or the scholar, can there be either the logical or the illogical? We have to get along with the logical-illogical in our existence of the hyphen. Everything that is said to be logical is somewhere out of agreement with something, and everything that is said to be illogical is somewhere in agreement with something. I need not worry about the big dog who said good morning. If considering some of my acceptances, I inconsistently turn him down. I am consistent with something else, and that is the need in every mind to turn something down. The need in every mind that believes or accepts anything to consider something else silly, preposterous, false, evil, immoral, terrible, taboo. It is not necessary that we should all agree in being revolted, shocked, or contemptuous. Some of us take Jehovah, and some of us take Allah, to despise or to be amused with. To give it limits within which to seem to be, and to give it contrast by which to seem to be, every mind must practice exclusions. I draw my line at the dog who said good morning, and disappeared in the thin greenish vapor. He is a symbol of the false and arbitrary and unreasonable and inconsistent, though of course also the reasonable and consistent limit which everybody must somewhere set in order to pretend to be. You can't fool me with that dog story. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.